Today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Mark, the 6th chapter, the 14th verse through the 29th. We are continuing going through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But we are today doing a roundabout to what I skipped in the very first sermon on Mark. The Gospel of Mark opens in in chapter 1, verse 1, with the appearance of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is shown arrayed in camel hair, dressed like the prophet Elijah, and proclaiming the message of the one to come after him who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. And today, Mark picks up John's story after Jesus has just sent out the twelve to go preach in Galilee. So we come to Mark chapter 6, verse 17. I'm sorry, 14. So Jesus has sent out all the disciples, and King Herod heard it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, It is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John and bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him for that and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and that he was protected. And whenever Herod listened to John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for all the important men in Galilee. When his daughter, Herodias, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. The girl went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? Her mother replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately, the girl rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oath and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her. 
Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. The soldier went in and beheaded John in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may bring honor and glory to you. Amen. So today's story is one in which we have a lot of outside historical information on. Josephus, writing in 80 AD after Rome had destroyed Jerusalem, tells the very same story and gives us a lot of interesting details about today's characters. The first thing to know is Mark 14, if you are not familiar with any of that history, is a joke that you've missed. When he's called King Herod, Mark is here kind of either using common use, but I think much more likely being sarcastic. This Herod is not Herod the Great from the Christmas story. This is Herod Philip, one of his grand, one of his children. And he ended up getting himself a bit of a bad reputation. First off, this King Herod had built his capital, Tiberius, on top of a cemetery. And if you understand Jewish laws of cleanliness, Walking over a tomb, as Jesus says of your whitewashed tomb, people walk over you and become unclean. Jewish people couldn't go to cemeteries without contracting ritual uncleanliness. So this Herod, who, like his father before him, is going to kind of show himself to be king of the Jews in some sense, decides to build his capital right where none of them can go, in an unclean spot. So everybody living in Galilee under Herod was sitting there looking at him and yeah, you're the king of uncleanliness, aren't you? But he also, according to Josephus, did indeed marry his brother's wife. That is a big no-no in the Mosaic Covenant when the brother is still alive. And in a way, it's also really gross. And it didn't go over well with his neighbors either because not only had Herod married his brother's wife, he had divorced his own, angering a group called the Nabataeans, who would eventually attack Herod. And all the people in the area would say that when the Nabataeans attacked Herod, they were getting revenge for John the Baptist. But what they were really doing was avenging his first wife. And this Herod in this story is so inept that eventually he gets exiled by Rome in 39 AD when he asks them to make him a king. So when Mark writes King Herod, he's cracking a joke. This guy got fired for wanting to be called king. And every time he tried to act like a king, Mark puts a bunch of Roman imperial words in here. He just seems to muddle it and mess it up. So that's Herod here, a very superstitious man that we can introduce into verse 14. 
So Jesus has sent out the disciples, and they are preaching and doing miracles, and Jesus is too. And King Herod hears of it, obviously for the first time, because he's thinking to himself, John the Baptizer has been raised from the dead, and that's why he has these powers. But then there's other people in Herod's court saying, it's Elijah, hearkening back to the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3, that Elijah must come before the Messiah comes before the end times. And then there's other folks. It's a prophet. Jesus is just a prophet like all the others, but he's an Old Testament-style prophet like we haven't seen. But however we get to it, we get to Herod's viewpoint in 16. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, who might be headed, has been raised. That's not a confession of faith in the resurrection. Herod is only Jewish in so far as that he's superstitious. And in the Jewish mindset, they, they still had a, a stark connection between the resurrection and the final judgment, just like we have in Revelation, where we'll have the resurrection and then the final judgment. They didn't have a sense of the Messiah coming and being resurrected, and they won't be resurrected later. So Herod is saying that John was risen up from the dead to give revenge for taking his head down. Now, there's two big points in this story. The first off is there's a bit of an Elijah and Jezebel parallel. We're going to get to what, what that means when we look at Mark 9 in a second here. But in the Old Testament, Elijah is always added with Queen Jezebel. She is the one who kills the prophets of the living God and installs Baal. She's the one that when Elijah has his famous confrontation with the prophets of Paul and calls down fire, still manages to scare Elijah off. And she's the one that Elijah just spends most of his career getting rid of. And we see in his Herodias that she just hates this John guy for pointing out that her marriage is illegitimate and for saying that she has sinned by marrying her husband's brother. And she gets steamy. Now this is something about the quality of a lot of critical scholarship that a hundred years ago there was a lot of debate in this passage. That the Victorian folks of the time could not believe what Herodias did, sending her daughter into dance to charm the men. But knowing what we know about Herod now, it totally makes sense. These people were pretty debauched. And so what this woman does is she wants to get John. And she can talk Herod into arresting him. But you can't talk Herod into killing him because Herod's superstitious. Well, if I kill him, maybe he'll come back and haunt me or something. God's protecting him. And, and we get this image that in verse uh, 20, when Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. Herod likes John so much that he's an entertaining religious fellow, and he doesn't want to get rid of him. But Herodias captured Hatches this scheme that she's gonna that when they have this big giant banquet, she's gonna send her daughter into dance. That means she's a teenage girl, and well, all these men had seen professional dancers. It's a scandal, it's malicious, 
that it's the princess. That's why Herod's response is, is so overwhelming that I'll give you whatever I want. That's, that was absolutely amazing, honey. Because in front of all the leading men, she could dance, and it was scandalous. And it is, it's a colloquialism that I'll give you half my kingdom. She couldn't ask for that. But the girl goes, and after she does the dancing, after Herodias has put her daughter out on display as a piece of meat, and her daughter comes back to her, Herodias makes her demand, give me his head on a platter. Unlike the story of Elijah and Jezebel, where Elijah lives and Jezebel doesn't, in the story of John the Baptist, Jezebel lives and Elijah doesn't. The second point of that is that John, like Jesus, must suffer. This is Mark's first passion play. We will, he's going to pretty much from this part to the end of the gospel, start having the conflict between Jesus and his disciples, where Jesus is telling them, I must suffer, I must die, and they're saying, no, 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 it can't be that way, it can't be that way. When Elijah shows up, he's supposed to convict everybody of evil, and then there'll be the resurrection, and everything will be 100% swimmingly, and no one ever has to lose or do any of that cross stuff. That, that's not quite how it works out, because as Mark explains later, jumping forward to Mark chapter 9, immediately after the transfiguration, we come to Mark 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked Jesus, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. Jesus, in this passage in chapter 9, affirms Malachi chapter 3, 32, that Elijah must come first. And he speaks to the tradition that was then alive in ancient Judaism, that Elijah would come, and he would be the one who would anoint the Christ, bringing us back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where John is out in the wilderness and baptizes Jesus. But Jesus takes that life of John the Baptist and that story of Elijah coming where Everyone, just like they thought the Messiah coming, it was going to be this big, giant show of glory, and he connects it to the same suffering servant that he used for Christ. Because he says, Elijah is coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he has to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? So Jesus says, yes, John the Baptist affirms Malachi chapter 3, verse 23, Elijah has to come first. But we also have Isaiah that the Lord's servant must suffer and it is through the Lord's servant's passion that the people will be saved. And that is why Jesus has to tell them in verse 13 
calling the story of John. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. Now, as I sought application in this one, I mostly was just convicted by the fact that John, I tried to be a macho person, but John was a lot more macho than I He was someone who could just say it and spit it out. And as I reflected on it, I think it's very important for us that there is this connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. It's easy to think of John the Baptist as the kind of guy who, well, the king's doing something wrong, so just call out the king. It's a little naive of us. If I'm being completely honest, I'm a pastor up here. I know there's verses in here that you said that where can get fired? And I know people at church, there's probably someone in the pew next to you who, if you got fired for saying that, would look at you go with ribs. It's hard to speak God's truth in the uncomfortable situations when there is no power dynamics. It is a completely different thing when you are John the Baptist, a dude wearing camel hair out in the desert, and you tell an absolute sovereign that he is living in sin, that he's committed adultery that your culture finds very gross, and that you don't care whether that gets his wife mad or not. John said that in a context that literally got his head put on a silver platter. And I think that's something that we should all aspire to. But you don't get there overnight. We talked last week about grace, about how everything is grace flowing through our our incomplete attempts. And Elijah, for me, in the Old Testament, is one of the key examples of grace. See, Elijah, we normally get told Elijah as a super-duper hero, because he's the guy who gets called out of fire. And it's a wonderful Mendelssohn opera where the, the baritone gets up there, call him louder, and he's mocking the prophets of all. And Elijah says, well, you know, maybe your God's out there taking uh, number two. And he tells the people for his altar to dump water on it. And yeah, yeah, you guys cut yourselves with knives and act all crazy. And I'm just going to sit here and laugh at you all day. And at the end of the day, like a total boss, Elijah just says, Hey, Lord, you told me to do this, so prove it's your God. And boom. Burns up not just the offering, but the altar and everything else. Now, if you just read the story there, you think Elijah is an amazing hero of the faith. He takes nothing from nobody. But if you turn the page, Jezebel, kind of like this Herodias in this story, says, I'm going to kill you. And he breaks Elijah. He goes running. It's one of the stories of Elijah's prophet powers. He goes running off so scared, so fast, that he goes an impossible distance in absolute panic. And then when he's done with it, Elijah is sitting there in the middle of the desert where John's going to get himself arrested in the same situation. But Elijah's sitting there in the middle of the desert and he's not acting cool. It's the next song in Mendelssohn's play. It's enough. Lord, now take away my life. I'm just like my father's. I've been zealous for the God of Israel and it is all broken. So Elijah goes from calling down fire to wallowing and asking God to kill him because he is so scared. 
for me, that's that's the one thing with this narrative in, in Mark chapter 6 that we don't really get. But I think it's an important thing for us to remember that John had put his head on the line. And just as we get to the Gospel of Mark, we'll eventually come to Jesus' passion. And it's going to be the same thing. Jesus is going to be weeping in the garden, faced with the reality, Lord, if I tell these people the Gospel, the truth, they're going to crucify me. Let this cup pass from me, but Jesus, that's the whole point. You're going to tell them the truth and the gospel, and they're going to crucify you. And Mark here, by saying that, in chapter 9, by saying that Malachi is fulfilled, but Isaiah is fulfilled as well, in this story of Herodias, this woman scheming, and a teenage girl dancing the dance of nine veils, and these things that are going on that people are are seeing and talking about and rumors as Jesus is ministering and as Jesus John, as John Jesus. In the background of all of this, this life of this one man, John the Baptist, is living out the passion. And I think that's why when Jesus says, out of all the Old Testament folks, John is at the top. He's the prophet who lives out that cross-shaped life while Jesus is ministering. It takes us back to Mark chapter 1. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John is preparing the way of the Lord to the cross here. He is making the path straight and saying, Hear it, I'm not letting you get away with it. I'm calling you out on it, and we are going to go to whatever it costs to speak the truth. That's the way Jesus is going to go as well. And I think the challenge and the application for us Christians today is we live the same life. That's a scary proposition. It gets your head served up on silver platters. But when we witness, when we speak the biblical truth in the situations, it feels like you're the voice of one crying in the wilderness, doesn't it? You feel like you're a guy wearing camel skin out by the side of a river saying, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. It's something that people look at you funny and stare at you and think you're too religious for but we do it, and we're called to do it, because, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, as people who have been saved and have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the prophets, the spirit of John and Elijah and Isaiah dwelling in you, when you live that, and you go out among the world and work with the people, you are the messenger. And it's a phenomenal thing that when you share a little bit of the gospel, when you show a little bit of righteousness, for that person and for their life and all the things that are happening for them, you are preparing the way of the Lord. 
He is using you in partnership for the transformation he wants to bring in the other person. <coughs> that is a phenomenal blessing, but it's a really scary charge. And it's not something that we should ever boast at. I'm sick and tired of the prosperity preachers who act like this is the most amazing thing because we do it. No, we, this is something that must take us to Mark chapter 1, verse 7. What John the Baptist said when he realized how solemn his duty is. The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the throngs of his sandals. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what it is for us brothers and sisters anytime that we share the gospel? We share the story of our King and our risen Lord. We all admit we, we're not worthy to bow down and untie the throng of his sandals. But in the sharing of his good news, Christ comes and baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing work. Let us pray.